Awesome. Thank you, DJ. Man, we're so blessed here. We can't wait to have such incredible worship. And uh, man, thank you guys. Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. Well, um, we're a couple of weeks away from March. Can you believe that? I mean, I know it's like 80 degrees outside, so you should be thinking that already, but it's almost time uh, for, for March. And with March comes Easter. So I wanna go ahead and let you know that coming up in just a couple of weeks, we'll be launching an Easter series called Let Hope Arise. This is a great time. If you're thinking about inviting uh, some friends to Riverside to join us here at church, it'd be a great time, a great series to invite them as we start kind of honing in on uh, the life of Jesus and uh, his death, his burial, and of course his resurrection as we gather on Easter Sunday here in just a few weeks to celebrate that. I, I want to tell you that because I also want to let you know that in April, the month following that, we'll be launching a series really around families and uh, some encouragement there. And part of that is going to be the opening and the launch of a thing called an at-home center. And so uh, in just a cu- couple of weeks, uh, I, well, I guess uh, there, Easter Sunday we'll, we'll open this. But uh, that's going to be out in the lobby. It's going to be a great place, a great space for parents uh, to have resources, uh, for you to know how to, ha- how to you know, just really cultivate faith in your home with your kids and with your family. And uh, because of that, there's going to be some, some renovations, some updating, some things happening in the lobby. So I want you to know that. That's going to be coming here in the next week or so. And so even next Sunday, if you start seeing some things out in our lobby looking different, maybe you even see some, uh, some cones set up or a piece of equipment, just know about that. Parents, watch your kids. Uh, we're doing all of that to really open this at-home center for uh, our families so we can continue. We know family is one of our, where is it? One of our pillars we've talked about, I'm getting lost up here. And, uh, and so that's going to be a part of that. And we really believe in families. We want to do everything we can as the family of faith here at Riverside to encourage our families. So that's going to be coming. And, and, and we know that that's not the only place and space in this, in this facility that needs some attention. And so conversations are happening. And we'll let you know more about that as we go along. But even about this room and you look at the carpet and the chairs, you can kind of see we need, to, we need to do some things to freshen up and spruce up the place. So those conversations are happening. And, and I want you to know about that as well. Um, today, uh, can you believe we've been in the series, uh, uh, this re-series, Becoming the Church in the Here and Now uh, for like seven weeks now. And we've talked about these uh, three things. We'll add a fourth one today. This is the last one. So we're kind of we're coming down uh, to, the, to the end of it. And uh, I thought, man, we've, we've come a long way. It's been a long journey through January and February as we've talked about this idea of what does it mean to be and what does it mean to become uh, the people of God, the church uh, in the here and now. And so I thought it might be helpful to kind of hit rewind real quick and kind of back up. I had to, I had to remember myself what all we talked about. Uh, just, a, just a few weeks ago on the first Sunday of January, we started this series and we kind of began with this idea. And I don't know if you can see this, but I'll show this for the front row at least, uh, that we want to be, I had to write this down because I forgot to put it on the slides. We want to be the people of God, a mission for God and with God to bring Jesus into the hearts and lives of others. Isn't this who we want to be as a church? This is it. We want to be the people of God on mission for God and with God to bring Jesus into the hearts and lives of others. And we asked ourselves, you know, if we could fast forward 12 months, what would we want to be true of Riverside? And 12 months from now, that's not true today. And I think we could all get around this idea that, man, wouldn't it be great if one thing that was true was that we became the kind of place we became the kind of place that was on mission for God and with God to bring Jesus into the lives of others for the sake, for the sake and the glory of his name. So we started there and then we thought, well, let's talk about 
two or three things. And, and what I really wanted to do was kind of pull the curtain back and let you know what I've been hearing in some of our leadership meetings with our staff and with our elders about their heartbeat for this church and some of the things that they really, really care about that, are, that have kind of risen to the top as we've kind of gotten around two or three ideas. And the first one of those was, was discipleship. And that's something that if you've been around Riverside for any time at all, you know this is something we care deeply about. And so, <coughs> excuse me, as we started that, we said, we said this, we follow Jesus better when we follow him together. And that's true. And that's why home groups that are launching tonight are so important. And if you're not part of one, you want to be a part of one, come find me, come find Jason, our spiritual formation minister. Somebody will help you. We'll get you connected because this is just true. This is just true. We follow Jesus so much better when we have a group of people around us that are helping us follow him together. And then we said this, also along the idea in the lines of discipleship. We're called as disciples to take what God has given us and then to re-gift that to the good, for the good of others and the glory of his name. So we talked about the spiritual gifts and the things that God has given us, the way God has created you and crafted you and gifted you and given you talents and abilities and resources. He's given you all of those things so that you can take that and re-gift it for others, to take that and to share that and to use that for the good of others and for the glory of the name of Jesus. And that's a part of what it means to be a disciple, isn't it? Uh, to, to follow Jesus wherever he leads, to help people coming to a grow, growing relationship with him, and, and to use the gifts he's given you to make that even possible. And then we, we, we moved on from that idea of discipleship into the idea of family. And family is something that's so strong and so central and so core to Riverside. And we said this, families that build their foundation on Jesus, they're going to launch kids that follow Jesus. And that's why this at-home center we're going to open in a few weeks is so important because we want to be about the business of launching kids, the next generation, in, in, into Jesus' followers. And I know that's something that, that we're passionate about, we care deeply about here at Riverside. We want to do whatever we can to launch the next generation, to launch my kids and your kids and their kids into the next generation of people. They're going to carry the name of Jesus forward, carry the church forward, and carry his name forward. But then we realize that this is true too that we have a responsibility as a faith family here at Riverside to come around our families. And so we said this, the church that becomes the larger faith family for the family will launch the next generation of families who follow Jesus. And so we know we have a responsibility to come around each other, to help each other, that we're not alone, that every family needs the faith family, the family here at Riverside, to come around them, to support them, to love them, to encourage them, that you were never meant to raise your kids alone to know Jesus, that all of us play a part in that. <coughs> Excuse me. And then we moved on and we said, okay, we know what it means to be a disciple. We've got an idea about what it means to be the family of God. But, but what about this idea? What about this idea of community? And there's two ways to look at it because we have the community gathering here in this room. And then we have the community outside of these walls that we have responsibility to love as well. And so we started with this. We said, as we looked at the story of Zacchaeus, we said, in that story, we want to be the tree. May we be a sycamore tree that can lift up people to see Jesus. So as we come together as a church every week and we gather in this room, what we wanna do is we wanna do everything within our power to lift up other people in the room into a position to where they can have an experience and encounter with Jesus Christ. And that's so important. But then we also said this, that, that be, the reason we do that is because every person is a person of immeasurable worth. And so as we, as we gather in this room to lift up each other to put each other in position to see Jesus. Then we go out of this room. 
We go out of this room into our communities, into wherever we live, wherever we go, wherever we work, wherever we go to school, and we want to value people. We want to do what Jesus did. We want, to, we want to remind people of their value and their worth in the eyes of God because every person is a person of immeasurable worth. Wow, we've covered a lot of ground in just the last few weeks. But now the last two weeks, we want to kind of land the plane and we want to talk about this idea. That at the, at the bottom of it all, at the foundation of it all, what's really got to be addressed is what is our identity? And what I mean by that is, what is our core identity? Like, who are we being called to be? And who are we being called to become, really? And what does that look like? And what does Jesus have to say about that? So I I don't know um, if you've done this. Uh, If you have daughters, would you raise your hand? If uh, if you're a parent, there may have daughters. Okay, so you're going to really probably track with me on this story. A couple of, not not a couple, uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, Alicia and I decided in our parenting wisdom because we're experts, that, um, you can laugh at that, that uh, it was time to get our girls' uh, ears pierced. So Ella Grace was uh, seven years old, I think, and Emma was four. I have to fact check my story over here. So Ella Grace is seven, Emma's four. We get the idea. We talked to some other of our teenage girls at church. They said, yeah, do it when they're little. Don't wait till they're older because it's traumatic. It's crazy. It's scary. It's not good. So do it when they're young and they'll forget about it. and It'll be great. So we, we did. Alicia went ahead of time to make sure that when we went to the place at the mall to get their ears pierced that, that there will be two people working because apparently, I've never done this as you can tell, but apparently the best thing to do, again, in our parenting wisdom was to, to like pierce both ears at the same time with this gun that they use. This is terrifying, I know. And so we want to have two people saying do both at once so it can just be done and over with. So she goes, she checks it out. Yeah, there's going to be two people working tomorrow. We go the next day. Uh, Alicia's got Ella Grace with her. I've got Emma with me. We walk in and we decide it's probably better to do one girl at a time because we don't want to traumatize the other too much during the, the first one's experience. So Alicia's got Ella Grace in the store and I'm taking Emma and we're walking around and we're just looking at stuff and trying to, to, to you know, use some time. And I come back around to where the store is and I can look through the window and I can see that Ella Grace, I, I think she's done, but I'm not sure. But I look at Alicia and she's like, yeah, yeah, come on in. And so I get the signal. So I, I come in the store and and, and I'm looking there and I'm, I'm like, okay, uh, let's swap girls. I'll take Ella Grace with me uh, and you take Emma with you. Emma's got like this super third child intuition. She doesn't know what just went down, but she wants no part of it. <laughs> but I'm not getting that yet. But so I trade girls and I've got Ella Grace on my shoulder like I'm carrying her, her head's back here and we're walking out and I'm patting her on the back. I'm like, dad of the year, baby, you're awesome. You did so good. Your earrings are beautiful. Let's walk out of the store. And I can't see her I because mean, I'm holding her so her face is back here. Uh, but we're walking down. I'm like, you know what? You did so good. Let's go to the, down to this little uh, store here. I'm gonna buy you whatever you want. You get a treat. Like normally, you know, we're cheap, but today you get a treat. So you can have like a blueberry slushy, whatever you want. I see a great American cookie store right, right down from us. So I'm walking up to that and I'm thinking, yeah, baby, you're awesome. Uh, what, what do you want? Do you want like a, a strawberry slushy or blueberry slushy? She's like, I just want water. I'm like, I know that's normally what we get, but today you get something great because you did so good. You were so brave. Your earrings are beautiful. What, what do you want? I mean, I'll even give you like a Sprite. We'll go crazy. And, uh, and I'm patting, I'm like, I just want water. I'm like, what is wrong with you? So I'm like, you must not be feeling good, you know? So I'm like, okay. So I walk up to the counter and there's like this 13 year old kid behind the counter wearing his great American cookie hat and apron. You know, he's all decked out. And I'm like, hey, I'd like a cup of water for my daughter. And he gives me like this attitude, like you're gonna have to pay for that, sir. I'm like, <laughs> 
okay, uh, it's going to be 27 cents. I'm like, I can manage. Um, I just need a cup of water for my daughter. She's not feeling too good. And it, as soon as I like say that, what I didn't know was like her face was flush. Like what you don't know about Ella Grace is most people think she's brave. Her doctors always think she's brave because when she gets a shot, she doesn't say a word. She just takes it. What, what you need to know about her, she's not in here, but she's in class. She's a bit of an introvert, a little bit like me in that way. And so like she won't say anything out loud, but on the inside, she's screaming, you know, uh, in terror. And so all this has happened and she's hold, held it all inside. And I tell the guy, I just need a cup of water. And as soon as I did, like, read the Great American Cookie Store, and she literally loses her cookies. Like, she throws up all down my back. And I don't know what to do. This, this, this cookie store is not with the other restaurants, so it's not beside any other bathrooms or facilities. Not, not even trash can in sight. And then she throws up again a second time, and I'm scrambling. I'm looking around. There's like a canister of napkins. I'm grabbing like 50 of them out of the thing trying to clean up. And then she throws up a third time, <laughs> and I'm completely helpless. The guy behind the counter is looking at me like I'm from outer space, and I'm like, I just need a cup of water. I'll come back and pay you later, I promise. The, the line is dwindling um (laughs) nobody wants cookies anymore (laughs) people are passing by like shielding the eyes of their children and I don't know I'm like what do I do I'm like trying to and then I finally just like take off and I'm on a mission to find a restroom and like you know hide until I can call Alicia and get some backup I don't know about you but there are some times right when you just need somebody to, to help you out, you know? And that was one of those moments for me. I, was, I didn't know what was going on, what to do. It was insane. Uh, for the record, I came back to pay the kid for a cup of water and he said it was on the house. So <laughs> kudos, kudos to him for that. Oh man, I, I, think, I think we all know what this feels like a little bit and maybe you haven't had that quite of a traumatic experience, but you know, we all know a little bit about what it's like to need help. You know, if you've ever been stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire or out of gas, you know, back, if you can imagine, you know, students before the days of a cell phone, if you got stuck on the side of the road like that, you had to wait for somebody to come and like stop and help you. You had no way to contact anybody. Um, and so, so we know what it's like to need help. I know, you know, if you can remember back to when you were a child, as a child, you were always quick to ask for help. I don't know what it is about children, but but they do this just instinctively. You know, mommy, mommy, help me. Daddy, help me. In fact, you get so tired if you're a mama and a dad of little kids of always hearing, mommy, help me. Daddy, help me. That you start, you know, saying, figure it out. You know, go play in the street. Um, you're just trying. You don't really say that. Um, I'm, I'm like going to lose major parent awards today. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. You know, but you get so tired. But kids instinctively know to know that it's okay to ask for help. Something happens though, you know this is true, you get a little bit older and then as like a teenager, you kind of stop asking for help, don't you? As something clicks inside of you, you want to be independent maybe, I don't know what it is, maybe you guys can help me out later. You know, but there's something inside of us when we hit that age, when that stage, that phase where we just kind of, we kind of stop asking for help. But the truth is, you know, even at that age, in that phase, that stage, we need help. We need help. We, we don't always know how to ask for it and always don't want to ask for it. That's why I'm really thankful that here at Riverside, we have people like Matt and Rhonda who love our teens and, and speak into their lives, even when sometimes as parents, we don't know how to. It's so important to have people like that around, around our, uh, our teenagers and around you know, even ourselves when we were that age and at that stage. But then even as parents, you know, you get a little bit older and you realize, man, there's just times you need, you need help. Like, like when I bought that car that I love, it came with an instruction manual. You know, when I got that first job, I got a detailed job description. Then I had this kid and 
I got nothing, you know, <laughs> nothing came in the mail. I got no owner's manual. I got no job description. And, you know, all the kids in the room, what you need to know is as parents, we are making this stuff up as we go along. <laughs> we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> you know, all we know is that we love them. We want our kids to know Jesus and we're trying not to kill them. <gasps> you know, we're trying to keep them alive. That's when we celebrate birthdays. Another year, we did it. <laughs> we have no idea. We need help. We need help. And there's something about being alive today in this day and age that makes us even more true, I think, than ever. We've gotten to this place where we don't even ask each other for help anymore. You know, if, if we need help, we ask Siri, you know. If, uh, if we need help, we go to Google. You know, we don't, we don't ask, we just don't ask for help very much anymore. We've kind of gotten isolated. Even in our Christianity, we've gotten isolated. If we need help, we, we go check out a website or a podcast or we just, we don't ask. We don't ask for help much anymore. But the, the truth remains that we all need help. We all need help. And, and, and what I love is that, you know, one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told was a story about a, a time when a guy, when he just needed help. He needed help. And Jesus taught us through the story what, what it looks like and kind of back to this word, what our identity is like as, as a people of God. And, and what the story does for Jesus is it kind, of, it kind of reminds us, or maybe it kind of even renews a sense of identity of who we're called to be as the people of God. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to, to turn over to Luke 10. Or if you have a, a device or something, open it up, turn it on, flip over. Luke 10, we're going to look at verse 25 and, and there's, there's two stories here. There's a story before the story, but you have to look at this story to get the next story. And this, this first story is about, a, about Jesus having this encounter with this religious expert, okay? And this is the guy that had all the answers. Do you know anybody like this in your life? Somebody that's always right. They know it all. They always have all the right answers. And, and you can't outsmart them. You can't outwit them. They just always have it figured out. That was this guy, except he didn't know in this moment who he was going up against. Um, but he comes to Jesus because he wants to question him. And what he really wants to do is he wants to discredit him. What he really wants to do is he wants to, to trick him or trap him in his words. And so he comes up to, to Jesus with a question that he, think is, he thinks this question is going to do that. And so he says in verse 25, this religious expert, he says, Teacher, talking to Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now we can pause right there because that's a great question. And maybe if, you, if, you're, if you're new to this church or you're new to, if you're new to church or new to the Bible, that's a question. You're like, yeah, I want to know the answer to that. That's a great question. Like, what do I need to do? What's, what's the baseline answer? What's the, give me the, the one sentence version. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus answers his question with a question. And he says this in verse 26, Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? All right. Verse 27, the man answered, well, it says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy, again, he was a religious expert. He knew his Bible. And this, these words may sound familiar to you because we read them just a couple of weeks ago out of Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. It's called the Shema because the very first word of, of that passage is, is the word hear or listen or in, in Hebrew, the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
That's, that's, that's what every person knew in that time in the day in life of Jesus. Every morning, every good Jew would rise every morning and they would say these words. They would recite them. Every night before they went to bed, they would say these words. They would recite them. But then this guy adds on Leviticus 19.18 and he says this. He says, you should also love your neighbor as yourself. And, and Jesus says, you're right. Good answer. Do this and you will live, right? But this this guy, he, he wasn't done yet because he hadn't tricked or trapped Jesus yet. So he said this. He wanted to justify his actions, verse 29. So he asked Jesus, okay, then tell me this. Who is my neighbor? And again, this is a great question, isn't it? Because essentially what this religious expert is asking Jesus is said, okay, you need to define this for me. You got to tell me, where are the boundary lines on who I should love on who I should show compassion to, on who I should have mercy on. Where are the lines? Show me where the box is. I can operate inside the box, but tell me, where do I draw the line on who I should help and who I shouldn't help? Who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, I need to, I need to know exactly who that is so I can go and do that. This guy, he's just like us, isn't he? He wants to know exactly what to do. He'll go do it. Just tell me exactly what to do. So this is the question that, that, that sets up this next story, maybe one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. But I want you to hear the question before the story because the question is, who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Who should I help? Who should I have compassion on? And in this story, I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to, to renew our sense of identity as who we are as a people of God. And this is important because where is our identity normally found? Just think about this for a minute. I think the same is true of them that it is true of us. For them, for the people he was talking to, for his audience that day, for these, these Jewish leaders, religious experts, where was their identity found? Well, it was, it was easy. It's, it's found in the law of Moses. It's found, it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the, in the law. It's found in their tradition. It's found in the people that they, they lift up as, as the heroes of faith, Moses, Elijah, all of them. It's found, it's found in, in, in all of those things because those things make them, to be honest, comfortable because they can name them and they can, they can put a box around it. They, they know how to check that box when they've done that, you know? Uh, their identity is found in believing what they've always believed the way they've always believed it. And as long as you don't mess with any of those things, their identity is is, is solid. But what Jesus did in his life and ministry, this is crazy, but it's true. Look it up. Is almost at every turn, at every turn, he's messing with this identity marker because he's, he's making people think differently about their tradition. He's making people think differently about scripture. He's making people think different, differently about, about their heroes of faith. He's making people think differently about the way they believe what they always believed. And anytime you mess with any of those markers, you're messing with people's identity. And this is why the religious, the religious leaders hated Jesus because he wouldn't stop messing with those things that marked who they were, their identity. And Jesus says, all those things may be good and they may have their place. But I wanna, I wanna call you to something new. I want your identity to be rooted in something completely different than tradition or people or, or your comfort or how you've always believed what you've believed. I want, I want your core identity to be entirely different. So Jesus tells a story. Verse 30. And you know this story. Even if you've never been to church, you know the story. He said, a Jewish man was traveling 
from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, you're not familiar with the geography and the landscape. Probably a lot of us aren't. But everybody in that audience would know exactly what just happened. Because if, 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 if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, what you're doing in Jerusalem is you're starting 1,200 feet above sea level. And you're going to go to Jericho, which is 2,200 feet below sea level. So it's a pretty rapid descent. And not only that, but the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is long. It's winding, it's dangerous, there's cliffs, there's bluffs, there's jagged rocks. And everybody in the audience would know that day what was going to happen to this guy because you don't travel that road by yourself. If you do, guess what? You're going to get beat up. You're going to get ambushed. You're going to be robbed. You're going to be left for dead. And at this moment of the story, everybody's like, yep, saw that coming. Going from Jerusalem to Jericho all by yourself. Bad idea. Verse 31. But by chance, there's good news. A priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Now, at this point in the story, everybody's kind of thinking, huh, that's interesting. And there's a couple things to to think about here. Because if they were going from from Jericho to Jerusalem, that would be completely understandable. Because if you're going to the temple, if you're going to worship, there were, there, were, there were purity laws and there were different things to be considered and things to be thought about. You wouldn't want to defile yourself or become impure before going up to, to the temple. So you might could, could reason around that a little bit, but they're not going to Jerusalem. The stories are coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's a little bit curious, but you're still tracking with Jesus. And if you're in the audience that day, you're probably thinking, okay, the first two guys, they, they didn't get it. But the third guy, we know who's coming. It's probably not going to be some religious leader or expert or leader in the church. It's probably going to be just a normal, devout Jewish guy. You know, he's going to be the hero of the story. He's going to be the one that comes along next. He's going to be a guy just like all of us. And he's going to be the one that does the right thing. But that wasn't what Jesus said. And this is hard for us because we don't quite understand this. But verse 33, this is what Jesus said in his story. He said, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. If you could lean in and we could be present right now in the moment when Jesus was telling the story for the first time, what you would have just heard would have been an audible gasp, like like shock and awe. I mean, think of, just in your mind, you just go there, who is, who is the number one enemy? Who is the worst person in the world? That's the person that Jesus just made the hero of the story, a despised Samaritan. In verse 34, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. I don't know if you, if you tracked all those words, but, but the way Jesus told the story and the way, the way Luke wrote it down, he just used 12 active verbs to describe all the things that this despised Samaritan did over and above the call of duty to love this Jewish man who was left for dead on the side of the road 
and ignored by two other Jewish men to love him in an extravagant and unexplainable way. Twelve different times he uses words like he, he, he took him and he had compassion and he, and, he, and he bandaged his wounds and soothed his wounds and he put him on his donkey and he took care of him. And over and over again, he just goes on and on. He's gushing about how much this despised Samaritan has done for this Jewish brother who had been passed over. In verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And I want you to hear the response of the religious expert. He said this. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He couldn't call him by that name. Um, you can almost tell his voice, it's low and a little bit sheepish. Uh, it, was, it, was the one, it was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. You go and you do the same. I love what the great Martin Luther King Jr. said about this. I, I put this on the screen. He said this, he said, the priest and the Levite were probably afraid to help. They asked if I stop and help this person, what will happen to me? Samaritan asked, if I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? It was a kind of dangerous unselfishness. I love that. And I think it begs the question for you and I, how can we be dangerously unselfish? You may not think of yourself as a selfish person, but do you think of yourself as someone who's dangerously unselfish? You know, I think, I think Jesus is saying, man, this is who I want you to be. This is who you're called to be as the people of God. This is to be your core identity. And your core identity isn't rooted in anything other than being a, a people who practice loving people in extravagant, in unexplainable ways. This is who you're called to be. This is your identity. Your identity is rooted in love. Your identity is established in people who love people, who practice loving people in dangerously unselfish ways, who love people in extravagant and unexplainable ways. And the question that I think you and I have to wrestle with today is, is this true of us? Is this, is this at the foundation of who we are as a people here at Riverside? Are we a people who are dangerously unselfish? Are we a people who, who love sacrificially and give sacrificially in unexplainable and extravagant ways for the good of others and the glory of of God, because this is exactly who we're called to be. And I'll tell you, this is a big idea and this is a big story. And I don't, I've been wrestling with all week, you know, what do you, what do, you do with this? You know, like how do I encourage you to go out and do this this week? Because chances are, I don't know who the worst person in the world is, but you're probably not gonna walk by them on the side of a road to Jericho. Um, but all of us this week are gonna go out from this place. 
And I don't think it negates the call over our lives for us to love and to practice loving people in extravagant and unexplainable ways. So I don't want to diminish the story, but I do want to make it practical and I want to lean in with you this week and I want to ask you to do something. So I want, you, I want to ask you to think about this. Who is it right now in your life with whom there's tension? Probably even as I say that, a name jumps to your mind. Who is it in your life right now with whom there is tension? Maybe when I say that, your first thought is it's my husband or it's my wife. Maybe when I say that, you, your first thought is it's an employer or an employee or a coworker. Maybe it's a, a brother or a sister or a friend. Maybe it's, it could be anybody. Who is it in your world, in your life right now with whom you are experiencing some tension? This week, love that person in an extravagant and unexplainable way, in a sacrificial way. And, and I wanna say this, don't pray for him. And I, I don't mean you can't pray for him, but, but the call of the story is to do something. Again, 12 active verbs the guy used to describe the extravagant, unexplainable love that this Samaritan, this despised man had on this other guy. What can you do sacrificially this week for whatever, whoever that person is to lean into the gospel, to lean into the story, to live into this identity as who we're called to be as we renew this calling of identity in our lives, to love people in unimaginable and unexplainable and extravagant ways. What can you really actually tangibly do this week to love that person? Take them to lunch. Go buy them a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Send them a card. Do something they wouldn't expect. And let me just say a time out. If somebody asks you to lunch today, don't assume that they have a problem with you. Um, that could get really awkward after church. You, know, you want to go lunch with me? No, no. But seriously, we can do this. And when we do this, what happens is that you and I get to participate in the gospel. We get to participate in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this... And I really want you to do that. This is a challenge for this week. I want you to do this. I want to hear stories. And maybe you can share, maybe you can't because of the nature of them. But I want, I want there to be stories because this week we did this. We went into the week and we looked for an opportunity with someone with whom there's tension right now. And we did something to love them in a practical, in a sacrificial, in an extravagant, in an unexplainable way that cost us something. But in doing that, we practiced the gospel. We practiced what we believe because this is our call and so often i've heard this story all of my life and i've heard it go you know do good for others that's nice and all that's not the story the story is to love those with whom there's tension to love those with whom there is despise and to love them in unexplainable unimaginable and extravagant ways to live into the gospel this is the gospel church stand with me if you would You know, I, I can only imagine as Jesus told the story that he had to be thinking to himself. There's a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways in which Jesus is the Samaritan in the story, right? Jesus, born in a nowhere town named Nazareth, son of a carpenter, despised and rejected by men. He becomes the unlikely savior of our story. In many ways, Jesus had to identify with this character he had just drawn up the Samaritan. 
But also, Jesus was the one that was left for dead on the side of the road, wasn't he? I mean, one of his closest followers betrayed him and another one denied him. No one came to his rescue except three days later after he'd been dead, God himself raised him back to life. And he did that so that you and I, when we were dead, or at least left for dead on the side of the road, Jesus could come to our rescue. And here's the story this morning, because this is the gospel story, isn't it? That Jesus is the one. He's the one that comes when we were left for dead. And if you've ever felt left for dead, if you've ever felt all alone, if you've ever felt left out and, and just totally abandoned by everyone in the world, then that's good news because it's at that moment when Jesus can come walking by and he can become your savior too, because this is what he does. You see, good people don't go to heaven. Dead people who are made alive by the power of Jesus go to heaven. Forgiven people, they're the ones that go to heaven. And Jesus Man, he's our unlikely savior, but there's no, there's no better savior. And, and I'll tell you, we're gonna do this again this week. So shepherds, if you're in the room, if you and your wives can make your way to some point in the room, that would be just awesome. I, I just feel like we need to pray about this this morning. And because I know that whenever, whenever you read this story, there are people in the room today that probably feel like this, like this guy that was left for dead. And if that's you, I just want you to know, we, we wanna pray for you because there's hope. There's hope because Jesus came and he's coming and he's coming today and he wants to stop by the side of the road where you feel like you've been left for dead and he wants to pick you back up again. And if that's you, I wanna ask you to have the courage to just walk to the the edges of the room and to find one of these incredible couples to pray with. And and shepherds and shepherds wives, if if you're near somebody that you just wanna pray over, just do that too. Let's be a praying church in that way. Because this is the reality of our situation. This is the reality of our situation. At some point, we were all that person left for dead. And if it had not been for Jesus, we wouldn't be here today. And that's why we gather. And that's why we worship. And that's why we love in extravagant and unexplainable ways. That's why this is our identity because our savior, Jesus Christ, has loved us in an extravagant and in an unexplainable way. That's the way that we have been loved. And that's the way we are called to love. Man, if we can pray over you, just make your way to the edges of the room. Let us pray for you. But let's all gather together and let's just sing and worship this Jesus who loved us this much.